Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Democrat Jerry Brown served twice as California's governor, passing some of the nation's most ambitious climate change goals while in office. Despite retiring two years ago to a Calusa County ranch, Brown has kept his focus on climate change. The former governor joins us to share his hopes for national action on climate change and talk about what the future holds for California as it struggles with a pandemic and catastrophic wildfires. Then at 940, performer and teacher Rodessa Jones has said that she's not interested in art for art's sake. It has to be about social change, she said. It has to be able to save lives. Jones joins us to talk about her decades-long career in arts and activism. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Last month, former California Governor Jerry Brown co-signed a letter urging President Biden to prioritize holding nuclear disarmament talks with Russia. Jerry Brown joins us now to discuss his post-retirement work on nuclear weapons and climate change and his hopes for renewed action on those issues during the Biden presidency. The state's longest serving governor will also weigh in on Governor Newsom's handling of the coronavirus pandemic, the state's wildlife problem, and how California has changed during his decades in government. And welcome back to Forum, Governor Brown. Hi, well, thank you very much. Glad to have you with us. And uh, the first thing I wanna ask you since I've announced the retirement is how are you enjoying it over there in the ranch in your retirement? Uh, well, I enjoy it a lot. Uh, this is where my grandmother grew up and uh, it's been in the family all these years, and it's a lot of good memories. But also, it's just a very open space. Uh, this is a part of California where there's an 80-acre minimum. Uh, most of the uh, uh, people here are cowboys, and there are more cows than people. And it's a very beautiful part of Northern California and the coastal ranges. Uh, so I find it interesting, and, and I'm <clears throat> involved in the an Institute on Climate Change at uh, UC Berkeley and the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists uh, more generally on on uh, those important topics. So uh, there's lots going on, and uh, I find it uh, not all that much different. I'm, as governor, I try to uh, minimize my travel and uh, media appearances and deal with these big issues uh, like climate, uh, like education, uh, like uh, the budget. And uh, those kind of things are still uh, quite relevant in, in work that I do now. Well, you're still dealing particularly with the big existential issues, uh, nuclear disarmament and climate change. And I want to talk about those with you. But first, I thought perhaps we could talk about something um, that's on a lot of people's minds. Uh, when uh, Scott Schaefer and Guy Maserati did their yeoman work in talking to you, uh, you said you wanted to be called more on advice. So I have to ask you, uh, if you were talking now to Governor Newsom, what kind of advice you'd give him, particularly in light of the fact that there are a couple of polls recently that show that 
Well, there's more at this point. Uh, he's more in disfavor than he was just a few months ago, particularly because of vaccine distribution. Any any wise sage advice for Gavin Newsom? Well, first of all, of- if you look back at history, if memory serves me well, it's not unusual for governors after a couple of years to see their polls drop, particularly if they're very high. I, I think if you uh, look at my poll, the, my, my surveys were. Uh, uh, Gray Davis, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, maybe it takes, sometimes it's two years, sometimes it's four years, but uh, before the first term ends, uh, the uh, commanding heights of high poll, high uh, favorability does not last. So uh, one has to uh, recalibrate. I think the most important thing is to try to understand um, what are the challenges uh, facing California at this point in time, uh, focus on uh, the absolute top a few issues, and then go about them. And unfortunately, uh, this vaccine business and the virus are not something that you can just call a few people in your office and decide uh, to respond. There's a lot, for example, how many vaccine doses do you get from Washington? I think that's all going to improve in the next few months, and that'll all be to the good. But I think uh, the rollout, uh, the, the response, uh, that has to be well, well organized and uh, very carefully articulated uh, for for the public. But, have you and Ann had shots, by the way? I've uh, Ann hasn't. I've had my first shot, yeah, my second one in a couple of weeks. Well, I qualify. Uh, any I qualify any advice on handling the pandemic, though, for Governor Newsom? Uh, anything you uh, want to dispense in the way of advice? I think you just have to really think through how you uh, present the, the problem. Uh, how you describe uh, how you're going to respond and make it as simple and as clear as possible. That's wise. Uh, Let me also ask you uh, about, well, I want to get into the big issues with you, but first of all, um, could you say something about maybe how Governor Newsom ought to manage or how you would uh, advise him about this conflict with CTA and union resistance and reopening? Uh, Yeah, that's an interesting uh, issue. Uh, we have a. I'm the chairman of a charter school in Oakland, which you may well know of, the Oakland Military Institute, a six through twelve school, and they're not in school either. And the distance learning uh, is not very successful. So, particularly the kids that are special ed or uh, not uh, proficient in English, uh, they're having the greatest trouble. So, yeah, they, they've got to get these kids back in in some way. So, I think. You have to find out what's what's the right thing, what's the best thing, knowing that, you know, there's pretty good arguments on, on both sides. But um, I think you've got to find a way to open it up to some degree uh, based on the highest priority, the highest, the kids with the highest needs. And then uh, I think you just have to bring uh, the CTA and, and the California Federation teachers around. Uh, I'd also be trying to get them vaccinated. There's only 300,000 teachers. So, um, you know, they're doing that many vaccines in one or two days you can maybe get them all all vaccinated or in a short period of time so they got to do something uh with the kids and uh, since you mentioned the oakland charter school which was really a very uh, signature project of yours um where are we now in high-speed rail as you see it uh, excellent excellent um uh, biden is has uh, told people uh that he's very strong on rail and that includes high-speed rail uh, people have talked to him. I think California has a very good chance of getting a substantial part 
of uh, future transport, uh, uh, transportation funding. Look, I know the, the, the skeptics are out there, and they're uh, Lilliputian in their uh, lack of imagination. Uh, California got money from the voters. Uh, we're building. There are uh, thousands of people have gotten jobs. Uh, we're talking about the high school graduate types that are getting uh, carpenter jobs and labor jobs and uh, apprenticeship with good union wages, pensions. It's great. Now, do we have enough money um, to get to this next most important link? No. But when is the, we build our freeways, uh, 80% of it has historically come from the federal government. Uh, we're paying 100%, not 100%, we're paying 70%. So, look, we get, we're going to get billions of dollars, and we're going to complete it from Fresno, uh, Merced, right into San Jose and Silicon Valley. We already have the money to complete, to electrify Caltrain from San Jose to San Francisco. So we're going to have a seamless high-speed rail from the valley um, right, right into San Francisco. And we'll, that will be there. It won't take that much funding. Uh, we have a lot of support from Nancy Pelosi and others. So uh, I think we should be very optimistic that California will have the first high-speed rail system in America, and it's long overdue. Talking with Jerry Brown, former governor of California, and I do want to talk with you, Governor Brown, about particularly two things that I know are very close to your heart, about uh, what I alluded to before is the two existential crises that we're facing. I'm talking about nuclear disarmament and climate change. But since you mentioned Lilliputian skeptics, I have to ask you about a column that appeared just yesterday in the New York Times. Uh, Brett Stevens, who is, uh, I suppose, they're one of their conservative voices uh, on the editorial page, uh, talks about places that have Democratic majorities and specifically talks about California. I don't know if you saw the column, but he says... I, did, I, I didn't read it. I'm very curious about it. I wanted to read it, but didn't get it done yet. Well, let me give you the basic thesis because I'm interested in your response to it. Uh, he says in California, um, first of all, he's talking about an exodus now to Texas and Arizona. I know you've kind of disputed that, but he says we've got higher taxes, we've got more homelessness, we've got uh, more difficulties with public schools, and all of that as a result of not governing from the center. He uses Colorado as an example of more of a purple kind of governing that he feels is superior to the kinds of problems we have because we have so much of a majority here with respect to the Democratic Party. So what... Uh, well, I just wonder what your response is to that kind of an argument. We hear it. We're hearing it from. What, what, is there a specific uh, policy issue that he's objecting to? Uh, I think he's talking about policy issues that have, uh, from his perspective, uh, gone out of control. Well, like which one? We well, so he, cites, he cites homelessness, particularly in California. I think it's worse than anywhere else, isn't it? Um, well, look, this homelessness, yeah, it's been going on since, uh, you know, Willie Brown was mayor of uh, San Francisco. So we've had a lot of time to think about it. It spread to many, many other cities. And uh, unfortunately, there's a lot, of, a lot of issues here. There are people, there's the high price of, of low-income, uh, you know, of, uh, the, the old hotels, that uh, single-room occupancy people used to stay in those for a buck a night or something. Those are uh, gone for the most part. You've got a lot of people who are mentally um, impaired, uh, serious, serious mental illness, and then you've got the drugs. Um, and you got these people on the street that really have lost their their capacity to, to uh, govern themselves. So I think you do have to use a more uh, use more authority from the state. There's a great reluctance on that. But these people leaving them in tents and and what have you on the streets. I think they have to find uh, ways that they can uh, get these people off the street. Uh, and uh, even if they don't want to do it, 
I think if we're not willing to do that, uh, then they're just on the street. So, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't look good. It is not good. And I would say the current law and attitudes uh, is making it very difficult uh, to provide an answer. And I think even throwing a, a billion at it or two or three billion will leave it uh, as a, still a gigantic problem. Now, uh, all the factors that have led to it, uh, I think there are many factors. So uh, I think you have to be somewhat understanding uh, of the governor and people in power. Uh, but I do think a lot more can be done, but the laws have to be changed, and we have to find a way to get people off the street. And uh, just the idea of saying, okay, uh, harm reduction, uh, let them sit there and shoot up, uh, you know, in the tender line, uh, that, that, uh, that should not be tolerated. Talking again with uh, former governor of California, Jerry Brown, and uh, we're going to have to cut away for about 60 seconds. But when we come back, we'll talk with Governor Brown about a letter he signed asking President Biden to prioritize work on disarmament with Russia. This is with Robert Rosner. Some of you may have seen it. And essentially, the argument is uh, we uh, getting vaccine at warp speed, but we need to do something about the fact that the doomsday clock now has us about 100 seconds to midnight. What to do about that and what to do about climate change more conversation with Governor Jerry Brown. And by the way, if you'd like to join the program, let me invite you to do that. Toll-free number 866-733-6786. That number again, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. We're talking on Forum this hour with Governor Jerry Brown. Odessa Jones will be joining us later in the hour. And Jerry Brown, of course, is former governor of California. And if you have questions for the former governor, you can give us a call at 866-733-6786. The number again for your calls, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email forum at kqed.org. Governor Brown, before I went to that break here, uh, I was talking again about nuclear disarmament. It looks as if, in fact, it was on NPR's news, uh, President Biden is moving forward with Star Treaty, which would be for about five years. Uh, that's all to the good, I think, from your perspective. And you outlined a five-step uh, action plan. Uh, one of the five action plans, uh, one of the things that was included was the Star Treaty, renewing it. But we're also talking about prohibiting and launching on uh, warning and uh, prohibit launching on warning and also uh, uh, modernizing, stopping the modernizing uh, that's going on, limiting um, strategic missile 
uh, defenses and, and also diplomacy, and that's a big one, uh, not only with Russia and China, but obviously with North Korea and Iran, wild cards like that. How much of this is viable in, in the Biden administration? How much of it is realistic in terms of really moving forward? Well, there is a, a, a very strong forces that are pushing for more military spending and more aggressive uh, behavior, actions, attitudes toward uh, both Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea which I consider um, very dangerous. Uh, we used to, uh, in the time of the Soviet Union, uh, have uh, meetings with, uh, between the intelligence agencies, U.S. and Russia, uh, the politicians, uh, Secretary of State. There were summits. Uh, at one time, Richard Nixon uh, stayed overnight with his wife, Pat, at the Kremlin, uh, talking to, uh, into the wee hours of the morning with Brezhnev. Uh, there was real discussion. Well, a lot of that's been shut out. Uh, Obama shut down the San Francisco consulate, uh, the Russian consulate in San Francisco that had been open since 1853. There's a general attitude that the way we punish Russia is not talk to them. That's highly dangerous when they have thousands of nuclear warheads pointed at us, as we do to them. And uh, we have our uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles on alert. That means the president has... Uh, uh, 20 minutes, 30, maybe less, to decide that if a, uh, the radar uh, the signals say that there's an attack coming, then we fire. Uh, well, that's happened a couple of times before. When Bill Perry was Secretary of, State, uh, Secretary of Defense, he was woken up at 2 in the morning, and they said the Russians have launched 200 missiles. Well, he said, just calm down, and it turned out uh, it was a computer glitch. This has happened more than once. Yeah, forgive me, Governor. I want to recommend an article that you did with Bill Perry and Ro Khanna and Politico all about the chance of nuclear blunder. It's a very important article to read. And I know yeah, you've, well, you've probably read Eric Schlosser's book, haven't you? Yes, I have. And I've seen his movie, uh, Command and Control. It's Look, scary. All I'm saying is that we're depending to avoid a nuclear war on software. Uh, the Russians have something called the dead hand. And if, uh, if their radar picks up uh, what they think is an incoming missile, which they've already done uh, mistakenly uh, a few years ago, then the dead hand says their missiles are launched automatically unless a human hand um, stops it. So uh, Putin doesn't control his weapons the way he thinks he does, nor does Biden. These are complex systems that have many uh, nodes, uh, many informational uh, points of, uh, of signaling, and plus you have human beings. Now, let me just switch to uh, something that's rather ominous. Uh, Admiral Charles, uh, Charles Richard recently said, and I'm quoting, there's a real possibility for a regional crisis with China or Russia that, I'm quoting, could escalate quickly to a, nuclear, to a conflict involving nuclear weapons. All right? Quoting, consequently, the U.S. military must shift its principal assumption from nuclear employment is not possible to nuclear employment is very real possibility. All right, that means that this, uh, the head, he's the head of strategic command. He's basically saying we have to be prepared to fight a nuclear war. I can tell you there are many, many thoughtful people, including Bill Perry and others, who think the idea of fighting a limited nuclear war is ridiculous. You run the risk it will escalate to uh, a full-scale nuclear exchange, which could extinguish humanity. That is a real, uh, not an immediate, but a real possibility. And this change of doctrine uh, by the head of our strategic command says we've got to get ready to fight nuclear war uh, with Russia and China. Uh, this is something 
virtually nobody knows about, and they're not worried. But I'm here to tell you, for anybody listening, it is damn serious, and uh, I hope that uh, President Biden uh, uh, brings this up as a public issue and debates it so we can uh, make some sensible responses. Well, I think you've said, Governor, that uh, his first task, President Biden's first task, should be working with the Chinese on climate change. You said that in the Los Angeles Times. and. Uh, I know you met with Xi Jinping uh, in the Great Hall, and actually he was here in California back in 2013. But there's a lot of distrust of the Chinese and fear that Biden is going to be too weak. And uh, I'm wondering about your concern of uh, is climate change and talking to Chinese about climate change above nuclear disarmament talking with the Chinese? Well, the Chinese have like uh, something like 400 nuclear warheads. The Russians have 7,000. We have 7,000. the English and the French have as many uh, warheads as the, uh, as the Chinese, although the Chinese probably have more submarines and what have you. Look, it's very dangerous. Uh, the, the issue we face is, are we going to basically, because of Chinese, the Communist Party, the repression, uh, the uh, uh, corralling uh, containment of the Uyghurs, uh, all that that's going on in Hong Kong, our, uh, our, uh, the South China Sea, Taiwan, uh, are we basically going to just go to the brink and possibly blow up humanity? Or are we going to find some way uh, to talk more and see if we can't find a way to accommodate our very, very different systems between our uh, unusual form of democracy and their unusual form of communist control? We've got to find a way to live on this planet uh, together. Uh, now, if we have differences, they can result in wide-scale, uh, maybe ultimate destruction. The German people, because they were divided between Lutherans and Catholics over very uh, minor doctrinal points as, as seen today, wiped out 25% of their people. If we have the same ideological conflict today with China or with Russia, we could wipe out not 25%, but 25% of humanity or maybe 100%. So uh, this is such a big issue. Uh, that's on the nuclear. On the climate, it's very serious, but we have more time to talk about it. There's no doubt China is uh, generating 27% of the heat-trapping gases. America's generating 13%. Unless America and China together act to reduce and ultimately to get to zero carbon emissions, the world is going to be highly disrupted over the next uh, 10 to 20, 30 years. So we've got to work together. And I know we got human rights. We got the uh, problem with Taiwan. We got a lot of problems. But uh, we had a lot of problems with Stalin. But it didn't stop us from collaborating to defeat uh, Hitler. And the threat uh, of, of nuclear annihilation is even greater than the German threat. And the threat of climate change is longer lived, longer in duration, but it's the kind of change in our atmosphere that will degrade uh, human existence, will uh, stimulate uh, tropical diseases, uh, migration, uh, massive for- and continuing forest fires, drought, extreme weather. So we've got to get to the big things. And I know it's very hard, and a lot of people feel that we can just build weapons, uh, threaten the Chinese, call them thugs, and whatever you want to call them, uh, but you're risking annihilation. You're risking uh, the impairment of human civilization through climate degradation. So we need wisdom. We need to uh, call upon uh, the wisest diplomats we have. Without compromising our principles, we have to recognize that extinction 
or widespread devastation is on the table. And avoiding it is very, very, I mean, it's the most important thing of all. And in World War I, before World War I in 1914, it would have been good if those bright people could have avoided that devastating war that led, in many ways, to where we are today, certainly led to the Second World War. So this is the, the real dilemma. Most people are caught in kind of the traditional thinking that we have our system and it's the best one. They have a terrible system. They're doing very bad things. So we need to threaten them. We need to uh, put missiles around their country. We have to ring China like we ring Russia uh, with all sorts of uh, threatening missiles, and then everything will be fine. The danger is something might go wrong. There can be a mistake. They can react. We can react. Uh, We need to calm down and have deep, extensive discussions on every aspect of our relationship. And I don't think we're doing that yet. No, I appreciate your passion and sense on this. And uh, we've got a lot of people who want to talk with you and I want to get to our callers. One quick thought, though, if you would, I'd like to have you give us your sentiments about what's going on in Russia, particularly with opposition leader Alexei Navalny now, uh, Navalny, excuse me, being given a two and a half year sentence. And um, uh, things are pretty much in upheaval there. I mean, you've got thousands out in the streets and there's certainly uh, an attempt really to overthrow Putin, which will probably be unsuccessful. But uh, from within Russia now, there is great resistance going on. Yeah, there is. And how much? I don't know. Russia is a big country. Uh, I I can't tell. If uh, the Russians looked at our attack on the capital, they could uh, conclude that America is in great turmoil. If they listen to um, the systematic racism uh, and other uh, very serious concerns, uh, they could play that in different ways. China, there's no doubt uh, China, uh, Putin is uh, killing people. Uh, they're repressing, although there's a lot more freedom than there is in China. Uh, how we deal with that? How, I think we have to deal with it just what we did with the Soviet Union. Uh, we learned to, to work our way through uh, decades during the Cold War without blowing the place up. We have to do that again. I think uh, focusing on the evils of Russia, yes, that, that's important. But we have to be uh, realistic about what is our power and what is our contribution. Can, do we really want Russia to adopt our particular form of democracy uh, or what? And I do think we ought to be standing up for human rights. We have to be uh, very clear on that. Uh, but also, you know, we've put NATO uh, surrounding Russia. Uh, in countries that used to belong, used to be part of Russia. George Kennan, probably the wisest man on Russia, said it was the greatest foreign policy mistake ever. Uh, Fifty scholars, including uh, Paul Nitsa and, and Daniel Pipes and Robert McNamara, all said taking NATO beyond Germany up to the Russian border was a big mistake, and we did it anyway. So w- w- there's a lot of back and forth, tit for tat, that makes our relationship unstable. All these things that we point out going on in Russia, locking Navalny up, terrible. But we have to take a deep breath and look at what is the greatest danger and let's take step by step and a way to uh, avoid uh, the ultimate horror and work through the best way we can. And over time, uh, we believe our system will will prevail, or if not our particular system, because it's kind of screwed up right now, uh, a, a better system than exists in Russia or China. Let me bring a caller aboard with us. Bruce joins us from Maryland. Bruce, welcome. You're on the air. Good morning. 
Governor Brown, I for a long time kept a copy of your 1980 Democratic Convention speech in in my belongings because I thought it was prescient. Uh, a lot of the issues that you spoke about in that speech we're dealing with today, especially 40 years later, the environment. Um, in 1992, after you ran for the Senate, you, you more or less retired from public life for for a while. So my question is this. Looking back on that time, would you have done anything different to bring those issues forward? And I kind of add a second question. Do you regret not running for Senate in 1992? Uh, no, I, I don't think I would have won. Uh, that was the age of the woman with two women senators, uh, Boxer and Feinstein. Uh, they, they were definitely stronger candidates. Um, well, I'll tell you what I should have done. Uh, instead of running for president in 1980, uh, where uh, that did not serve my political interests well at all. I should have been more patient, done the best job I could as governor, and uh, worked quietly to build my relationships with people uh, throughout the country. I was very impatient. I jumped out, ran for uh, president, I lost in New Hampshire, kept going uh, into Maine and then Wisconsin. And by the time I got back to California, my uh, popularity, which was I uh, had beat my opponent in the previous election in 78 by 21 20 points or something, uh, was not uh, was pretty poor. And then I went on to lose the Senate. So that, that was an example of not thinking things through, uh, acting uh, precipitously uh, with too much, uh, of too much ambition. So uh, not well ordered or, or thought through. So there, there's my thought on that. And how they begin it, if I were in a more credible position, I could have made my points better. But uh, you asked, could I have done maybe different policy issues that I'm not so sure. Well, I'm struck by your humility. In fact, it brings up a question from a listener named Robert, who says, thank you, Jerry Brown, for your leadership regarding disarmament and issues of war and peace. But how much of your views here would you attribute to your Jesuit experience? Well, I would attribute a lot to my Jesuit experience. I don't want to uh, separate that from my experience uh, with my parents or my grandmother, uh, who had some influence on me, as deep influence. But the Jesuits, um, uh, well, I'd say this, that going into the Jesuits to study to be a priest uh, was driven by my concern about ultimate issues. What's the meaning of life? What, well, how should I live? What, is, what should I be doing? What, what's life, what should my life be all about? All right, that, that was a spiritual, theological undertaking. Uh, working on... Uh, avoiding nuclear war or climate uh, devastation. Those are also very ultimate issues. And uh, they're not theology, but they have an analogous, uh, analogously profound importance. And that's why I'm so concerned about them uh, and not getting so distracted by the smaller stuff. The smaller stuff is exciting. The news of the day uh, grabs your attention. But we have to keep our eye on the ball. What, what is fundamental? And survival in the age of uh, nuclear weaponry, in the age of bio-weapons uh, and terrorism, in the age of cyber interference with our command and control, in the age of heat-trapping gases, uh, wow, we've got to keep our eye on the big stuff because we are far, far from being on a sustainable path. We're in a very precarious situation and the political discourse basically obscures that in a very dangerous way. Which brings up in only a few moments left, uh, what to do about wildfires. Some thoughts from you on that as we move forward. 
Well, you got to manage the forest, and, and that's you've got to uh, burn more. Uh, you've got to limit the housing uh, in, in near in that uh, between the, the urban and the uh, forest areas. Uh, you got a lot of stuff. You got to spend money. Uh, some of it's not politically popular. Uh, some of it isn't totally clear on how we do all this. Uh, but we need our best scientists thinking through in real time and uh, more aggressive imaginative policy than currently exists. Well, it's been good to have you with us. And I remember a moment uh, at our mutual friends, uh, Kay and Sandy Walkers, when I told you you had gravitas and that seemed to please you. And I'll say it again, you have gravitas and you've given a lot to the state and we are in your debt and we appreciate all that you have accomplished. Thank you so much for being with us this morning on Forum. Well, I appreciate your use of Latin terminology. <laughs> uh, and I've always appreciated yours as well. Thank you for being with us, Jerry Brown. Okay, and good, my uh, pleasure. Uh, enjoy your you. ongoing Thank you for all your return. many years, Michael. They've been great. Thank you for that. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to meet Rodessa Jones again. Uh, some of you may remember we had a wonderful event a few years ago celebrating 30 years of the forum program. Um, that was in my 30 years. I've only logged in close to 28, but it was a celebration of SF Jazz with uh, very memorable with Salman Rushdie and Zakir Hussein and Josh Redman and this inimitable woman that you're going to meet if you haven't uh, before don't know her, Rodessa Jones, who will be joining us in a matter of a few seconds here after a quick break. Stay tuned. There's more ahead on, on forum. And uh, thank you for being with us uh, for this segment with Governor Brown. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts. 